0: Hi, everyone. It's Ken. Before we start, I want to share some exciting news. We've paired with Midas Touch, so you can now watch these interviews on YouTube. Just search for the Midas Touch YouTube channel or click the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the episode.
1: I saw some polling like 70% of Americans think democracy is at risk and some of them are right-wing people who think we're communists or socialists and that that's the risk but a lot of people know it's this it's the election denying and all that stuff but only like seven percent says it's their number one issue and boy this just feels like how democracies go away
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Al Franken. You know him as the former senator from Minnesota and Saturday Night Live writer. He's also the author of four number one New York Times bestsellers and the host of the Al Franken podcast. We have a genuine celebrity on the show today for a change. Al, welcome to Burn the Boats.
1: Uh, Thank you, it was great meeting you in LA.
0: Likewise, great meeting you, too. You're back on tour now. Uh, As your website says, you're the only former U.S. senator currently on tour. I have seen clips of your set, and I have always been surprised at your ability uh, to maintain a sense of humor, even as our democracy is hurtling towards a cliff. How do you do it?
1: Well, you're assuming that the clips you saw – Uh, Those were a few months ago. (laughs) And right now, uh, I'm having a hard time uh, keeping my sense of humor. It's very, um, very dangerous right now. Our democracy is threatened. I was talking to Sheldon Whitehouse the other day. He's written a book about how the Supreme court was captured. And we were both kind of talking about tipping points. And I think we were kind of coming to the conclusion that maybe instead of the tipping point is coming, is that we've already had the tipping point in terms of the destruction of our democracy. And we kind of started to go back to, well, first of all, Citizens United, which is out all this dark money in, and if you're watching the campaign ads, those are all the, those horrible, horrible, uh, disgraceful, negative ads about crime, etc. I mean, I have a former counsel, judiciary counsel, Josh Riley, who's running in the 19th district in New York. He's from there. He's a brilliant guy. Um, he was my judiciary counsel for four years. And they run a thing, an ad, where they first they have a guy cold cocking a guy on the street. You've maybe seen this because they have – these are cookie-cutter ads. And they go like, you know, Josh Riley, his allies want to, you know, get rid of cash bail. (laughs) You know what I mean? And his allies want to defund the police. And they run a thing going defund the police across his face. He's not for – he and I together gave millions and millions and millions of dollars of funding to local police forces for crisis intervention training. That was my bill that I did with, with Cornyn, was my lead co-sponsor. And he worked with Cornyn's Judiciary Council to get this. And this what, crisis intervention training is... Training for cops to recognize when they're in a situation that's fueled by either mental illness or, in some cases, uh, drugs. And to how to de-escalate. And so it just, but it's a cookie cutter ad and it's paid for. It's all dark money. It's all dark money. Citizens United, Shelby County, Garland, not taking up Garland, and then Trump. And I'm just very worried right now about our our democracy. And there's so, I mean, so many of these Republican candidates all over the country who are running in key positions like secretaries of state, et cetera, are deniers. And it's very dangerous.
0: Yeah. You were sounding the alarm about this long before most people were paying attention Uh, I'm thinking about your first book about Rush Limbaugh and then- Rush Limbaugh is a big
1: fat idiot and other observations.
0: Right, and other observations. Um, And then Lies and Lying Liars. Right. It seems like you're working your way through the media conduits that are most manipulative of of people on the right. You started with Rush Limbaugh and AM radio. You went to Fox News with Lies and the Lying Liars who tell them. The dominant force now seems to be this social media ecosystem in which literally an alternate reality has been created. Have you begun to think about how to take that on after tackling AM radio and Fox News? We're in a brave new world now.
1: I think we should look at Section 230 of the Internet Decency Act or something. Right. And that was at the beginning of the internet. And it was, there's a reason for this, which was uh, basically say that, you know, Facebook or those platforms are platforms and they're not publishers. So they can't be responsible for the content. So people can put content on there and they can't be responsible for it. And that was a first amendment impulse. And it was You know, they just did not understand what was going to happen. And if you look at Facebook, Facebook has all these sophisticated algorithms. They feed this stuff to the people on Facebook and they know what the the algorithms that Facebook has is their whole algorithm is what's going to keep you on. Right. And. So they're feeding, and they know that agitating, people getting agitated keeps them on. So the idea that they can't control this is absurd. They're the ones with the algorithm. They're the ones pointing people to this content. So I think that we have to revisit Section 230, which basically said these platforms can't be responsible for the content, and they need to be responsible. And we, we have to, um, you know, There needs to be a way to do it where you're not stopping any kind of legitimate discourse, legitimate discussion of opinions and stuff. But you can't have just these lies going out.
0: Well, we have mechanisms in other media that address this, like libel laws. And certainly other countries can provide some instructive examples the idea that American exceptionalism requires us to put up with this, I,
1: I just think is false. Yeah, I mean, the libel laws, I suppose, still, still hold. I think Alex Jones, um, hopefully, will cough up <laughs> the billion dollars and be forced to, uh, and that will chase him. But, I mean, think about how pernicious and painful and awful that was and how all, how dangerous all of this is. I mean, this is part of that tipping point is social media, obviously. And sort of the dumbing down in our discourse, you know, I use Twitter. I have a lot of followers on Twitter. I tweet. But basically, people like to get reaction and followers and it seems like the... Uh, there's not much room for uh, sophisticated, thoughtful dialogue very often.
0: Are you surprised at how quickly this has all happened? How fast the right has descended into this pit, into this alternate universe? I'm, I'm thinking about your. Uh, very competitive election, which you won by 312 votes, yep. and both sides accepted it. That was not that long ago. There was a, a Washington Post editorial that brought it up, and the title of that editorial was Americans Care About Democracy, Just Not Enough to Save It. I cannot imagine if your election had happened today that both sides would have accepted the result.
1: Well, certainly, the other side would not have accepted the results, as it was there were you know some jerks who would go like, "Well, they had you know this many people show up who weren't legal was, you know that bullshit, but very, very little of it. A part of it was that we did it so transparently. <laughs> part of the reason it took so long for me to be seated is that we're Minnesota." And we had, uh, first of all, in other states, I would have been seated right away after I I won the recount in time to be seated with my colleagues. Uh, But then we had had an election contest, which is a legal thing, and that took forever. We had a three-judge panel, and they were just so thorough and actually— I think I had won by 260-some, and then it went up to 312 after that. But um, we did it so transparently. Every vote in the state was on paper, and every vote was hand-counted with a member of a a, a Coleman person there and a Franken person at the table. (laughs) And there were—you could— challenge a ballot and it would go up and then there were so many challenged because uh, but at a certain point we winnowed the ones that were legitimate challenges. We put them up online. Every ballot was online for everyone who wanted to see it to see. I don't know if that happens today. I mean, those were the rules. Those were the rules. (laughs) And uh, um, so but no no i mean the the person running for secretary of state now in uh in minnesota the challenger the republican challenger is a election denier and the fact that this this has happened is is just frightening it's frightening and i don't i think the horse is out of the barn i don't think we're ever getting this horse back in the barn
0: I hate to hear you say that and you've talked about the tipping point and the implication is that you don't return from a tipping point but I can't <laughs> I can't live there. So what are the the urgent actions we need to take today to at least have some hope of of recovering.
1: Well, one we have to win these elections and you know right now the trends aren't great. But you know, if if you're watching this, um, you might want to door knock. Uh, I won, as you said, by 312 votes. Think about that. <laughs> you know, um, the people that door for me won that thing for me. I mean, it's one person door knocked more than 312 people in the last week. I mean, um, so get out there, vote, vote, obviously, but do everything you can between now and the election to try to persuade people. And door knocking is a great way to do it. Also, door knocking, you learn a lot. You learn what people are really thinking. Uh, it's the best kind of polling there is. You give money to Unite Here, which is the hospitality workers. They are on the ground in Nevada, in Arizona, in Pennsylvania. They're the hospitality workers. I always, my pack Midwest Values pack always gives to them. I think we just raised $245,000 for them with a Zoom call. I had Conan O'Brien and D Taylor, the head of Unite Here. Uh, they were key in Georgia in, uh, two years ago. There's stuff you can do if you're – I mean, the best thing I can do on this podcast is encourage your viewers and listeners to vote and to uh, get out there and help, you know, phone bank, text bank, do any of that stuff. That's what we can do right here, right now, you and me. I can talk about it. But this is really scary, and the court is scary, and this North Carolina – case is very scary this independent state legislature uh doctrine that they're talking which is basically that the state legislatures uh can decide elections without uh and and how elections are conducted in their states without uh subject to the courts that's extremely scary uh and they've taken that i hope that they don't uh, decide for a North Carolina state legislature because two-thirds of state legislatures are controlled uh, by Republicans. And you know what they'll do. This would have enabled uh, Trump to win.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you're bringing up those threats because they don't get quite as much attention as the loud election deniers. Uh, But it's not just about Casting doubt on the integrity of our elections. And it's not just about gerrymandering and voter suppression. It's about vote counting and who the legislatures
1: send. I yeah, think. And the court is all about other things, too. It's about, obviously, overturning Roe. But it's also about the EPA not being able to uh, have authority over greenhouse gases and to do something about it. <laughs> and it's really friggin' frightening in many ways.
0: You've said that the Republican Party, and this is a quote, has ceased to participate in good faith in our democracy. I see that every day because I pay close attention. But for the the skeptical Republicans, for my parents uh, who, who don't pay attention every day, what are a couple clear examples, in addition to the the loud election deniers, of the Republican Party literally giving up on governing, on democracy.
1: I think one of the best examples is the RNC saying that the uh, insurrection on January 6th was, quote, legitimate political discourse. (laughs) I mean, come on, you know? (laughs) It's like, hello, we no longer (laughs) believe in (laughs) democracy. (laughs) What is
0: the point for them? If you can take us inside the mind of some of your Republican colleagues in the Senate, what is the point of winning power if that's what it costs, undermining the very basis of of that power, democracy?
1: Uh, I know what it is. It's – I mean, I – stay in touch with some of my uh former uh republican colleagues and i will give them crap (laughs) you know i'll text them and you know we'll i'll send you know i send them christmas cards and i know they're you know i ask them about their families and i know them and we joke and stuff like that i got along pretty well with my colleagues i thought and um and I will just chide them and, and basically say, why can't you just come out and say the election, that Biden won the election, and they will be blah, 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 blah. And ultimately, it comes down to I'd lose my primary. That's what it comes down to. I finally get them to say <laughs> say that. And these guys, I, I understand they want to be senators, and they want to stay in power, and they want to be senators, And um, each of them has different, I mean, Lindsey Graham, of course, went from just hating Trump to playing golf with him. And he just wants, Lindsey wants to be part of the action. He also wanted to get reelected in South Carolina. He he, um, wants to be in the game. And I think that's his whole life, basically. And that's kind of it. It's great to be senator
0: how does that make you think about apportioning moral responsibility for for January 6th? I mean, there's a lot we could point to, but I, I think that's a pivotal moment. When I think about all the people on the wrong side of the barricade there, how many veterans, for example, were among them? How many sincerely believed that they were the ones fighting for the constitution? And then I think about the cynics who who drove them to those barricades uh, from a safe distance, it is hard for me to decide who to be angry or
1: at. Or who were attacked that day and who's left. Right. I mean, you know, who were there. It's disgusting. You know, the, I don't know how many it was, 12 or something senators who signed on to that thing saying we're going to challenge the certification. Yeah. And th- what they wrote is, more Americans than ever doubt the, out, you know, whether it was fairly, silent. well, I you know why? <laughs> because you guys have been saying this and Trump has been saying it and lying and lying. And then the sad part is is that all this, the January 6th hearings have been really brilliantly put together and presented and it hasn't changed anything for these people. Right. And that's really frightening. I mean, I just was assuming like OK, somebody, <laughs> some of these people got to watch some of it. <laughs> and, and, and it just hasn't changed uh, Republicans at all. And I guess, like, I saw some polling, like 70% of Americans think democracy is at risk. And some of them are right wing people who think we're communists or socialists and that that's the risk. But a lot of people know it's, it's this. It's the election deny and all that stuff. But only like 7% says it's their number one issue. And boy, this just feels like how democracies go away.
0: You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes. And luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts. And I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world. All through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes.
1: Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis.
0: There used to be some kind of glue that held the Senate together. It operated on on tradition as much as as trust. You said recently that McConnell broke the Senate and have proposed what what seemed to me like some pretty simple reforms. How far gone is the Senate today in terms of a lawmaking body and? Are there simple tweaks that can help bring it back or is it just culturally so corrupted that it has reached a tipping point as well?
1: It's funny. The first day I got there, finally, uh, I was just talking to some of the veterans and some of the older altacockers, as we say in Yiddish. And um, so... I, you know, it was like Lautenberg and Carl Levin and uh, maybe Lieberman and anyway, Cole. <laughs> and so I said, uh, and they are going like, it's worse than it's ever been. <laughs> they said this, this is like 2009, July of 2009. And so Levin says, no, it's been worse. Carl Levin, Michigan, great Center. So I said, when? He goes, 1854. Uh, <laughs> and I said, Sumner being caned. He goes, yes. <laughs> and, I, and I said, well, okay, that was in the lead up to the Civil War. He goes, yeah, but that was worse. <laughs> yeah, every time I
0: hear people say we've been through this before as a country. It's the Civil War. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it didn't go well.
1: Well, six hundred thousand um, dead, right? Uh, but we ended slavery, anyway. Um, so for a while, <laughs> and then we had Reconstruction. Um, but then it just got worse from there. And uh, McConnell. The reason I said that about McConnell is that after Obama got elected, he they had a caucus. I think they had a retreat or something, and he told the Republican caucus. We're just going to make him a one-term president. This is the start of the Great Recession. We've had this horrible financial meltdown. And it's really serious. And he, um, they filibustered more executive, uh, the exact number of executive appointees uh, or nominees uh, that Obama put forward as had been filibustered in the entire previous history of the country. That broke it, and then I, you know, obviously the, the move on Garland, and he lied, you know, of course, he said it was the Biden rule, and you remember that? I do, I do, yeah. <laughs> which is totally different. The Biden rule, you know, he quoted this speech that Biden had said, I guess, um see, it would have been... Uh, I guess, 92 or something. Right.
0: And he was talking about the death of a Supreme Court justice. and
1: well, well, what Biden was talking about in 92 was not the death of a justice. Okay. What he was talking about, this was in June, which was at the end of a Supreme Court term. And right. he was saying that if a justice was going to retire so that he could replace be replaced by a, another conservative, that – They wouldn't take up a nominee unless we were consulted or even absent consultation, a moderate. Right. That was the speech. McConnell would basically took a little part of the speech to say the principle was we will not take up anyone during an election year. And, of course, this is June after someone leaving so that he can be replaced by a conservative, as opposed to someone dying in February. <laughs> and I remember him saying, well, there's already been a primary vote cash in New Hampshire. And, of course, Coney Barrett, <laughs> this is their absentee ballots had been in. She was confirmed. Uh, she was seated like eight days before. The election. Right. So the bad faith, the obvious bad faith is so ugly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How do we, I'm looking at your background. I, I see your American flag and I have, I've seen the challenge coins over your shoulder at, at other points during, during your interview. Yeah, this
1: is, uh, let me see there, there it is. Yeah. That is, uh, I got that in Afghanistan And it's beautiful. I don't know if you can really see the work there because it was made by an Afghani, an Afghan artist. But it's, you know, I've seen a number of these. You've seen that kind of triangle. But this is so gorgeous. And I got that Camp Phoenix. I did seven USO tours. I did four to uh, Afghanistan and, and Iraq and Kuwait. And, um... Yeah. Well, believe it or not that's when I uh,
0: when I first became a fan as a young navy navy lieutenant. I'm wondering now how democrats should talk about love of country like that. How do we talk about patriotism? It seems everywhere we turn the the language of patriotism, the symbols of it have been hijacked by the extreme right. No one can forget the scenes of American flags being the flagpoles being used at as weapons on January 6th. How do we how do we reclaim that?
1: I think we just talk about what we think the principles of this country are. You know, it's a sophisticated argument or discussion that we should be having. We have this all this flawed history. And I think it's quite racist for them to do like critical race theory as something that's not taught in any. K through twelve, you know, Yunkin using that, and Desantis pa- passing a law saying that uh, you know, a teacher can be uh, fired for making a kid feel uncomfortable <laughs> about our about our history. So how do you teach? How do you teach American history? You know, that's one of the things is we have to teach American history. Our education system is not. What it should be, but we've got to talk about what we believe America is, and and America is first and foremost about democracy and elections. And there's nothing more antithetical to America than what happened on January 6th, and who this president was, and who what he has been saying, what he continues to say, and this denial is lying, it's just lying. And we're supposed to be for truth, justice, and the American way. And that's what we're for. Um, And and that includes economic justice. You know, Paul Wellstone, you see right underneath that is a- I see it, yep. Paul said, we all do better when we all do better. And uh, this country is at its strongest when there's a strong middle class. And I think we have to talk about that and we have to talk about this enormous gaps in wealth and how that's not good for the country. It just isn't. Look, Democrats, we have our faults. Uh, I understand, you know, I represented all of Minnesota. I met um, everybody. <laughs> I saw really great people who were Trump supporters. But I also would go to... I remember in 2017 when the the Republican health care bill would have gotten rid of um, Medicaid expansion. Over 200,000 Minnesotans got their health care through Medicaid expansion. But not only that, but what that did was, was amazingly beneficial to red areas of the state. Because rural hospitals would have to eat it when someone came into the emergency room and wasn't covered. Well, now suddenly all these people were covered and suddenly the rural hospitals were flush with money. So what could they do? They could get more nurses and doctors and more technology and expand their scope of care. They could do home health (laughs) care. They could do all this stuff. (laughs) And in many cases, the rural hospitals became the largest employer in the county. So when the Republicans said what they were doing, I would go to these red counties and go to the, have a town meeting in, in a hospital. And people were crying and nuts about it and these were people in red red counties and so you have to be there you know remember when Cruz went to Cancun and and uh so then he lied and said I was only going there to drop the girls off and you know that was a lie but then Ben Shapiro said well what could he do anyway I don't know if you remember this, but uh, I that really struck me because I learned so much during disasters, during floods and tornadoes, and also you can do stuff. You have big staff. You're one of only two statewide elected federal officials. You're in touch with FEMA. You can have FEMA get a you know a diesel generator to a uh, water treatment plan because the grid's down. But you also learn an amazing amount about people. And one of the things you learn about people is how great they are and how they step up for their neighbors. And you don't give a shit what their politics are. And we need to, as Democrats, show up. We need to show um, our willingness to listen we also need to deliver strong messages and stand up for what we believe.
0: What are we getting wrong as a party in our messaging? And what are we getting right as well? Uh, but, you know, be be critical here.
1: I think people are just too afraid and too cautious and too colorless. <laughs> uh, I know that. You know, very often you have, and I had, you know, really good advisors and media consultants and stuff like that. But a lot of it just starts to sound the same. And there are people who have, some people are more compelling than other people. It, it does help to <laughs> have a compelling way way of talking. But I do think that we're very afraid sometimes. To go outside our box and uh, to go outside what's been determined by pollsters and consultants to be what we should be talking about. And it just gets very, very politician-y.
0: Yeah. Al, this has been great. I want to end with a quote from a young Navy Lieutenant uh, written almost 20 years ago. Uh, if I'm not making it obvious enough, it was it was me in a US Naval Institute piece um, writing about you, here we go. Recently, comedian and activist Al Franken toured Iraq with the USO. By all accounts, the soldiers loved him. And Franken, though an ardent critic of the war, praised the military personnel unabashedly. The ghost of Vietnam may not be completely exercised, but Americans can still love their military, even if some loathe its assignments. Still, too many of our leaders fear that missions will fail if a majority of Americans reject them, so be it. Billy Mitchell said it best, changes in military systems come about only through the pressure of public opinion or disaster in war. And I closed with, uh, God willing, the wisdom of an informed public will save us from tragedy, I don't know how to feel about that 20 years later, but the lack of a, of an informed public seems like it's dooming us to tragedy.
1: Yep. You're right. I mean, you're wrong. <laughs> 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 I, I, I reverse that. <laughs> no, I, I mean, uh, there's no real choice other than to keep work and trying <laughs> you know uh, and uh, I hope I'm wrong I hope the tipping point hasn't happened yet
0: I'm with you thanks for all you're doing al and thank you especially for your your tireless support of of vets if I'm not mistaken one of your first, actions in the senate was was supporting the pause act uh service dogs for vets is that right
1: i that was my bill i was what happened was again i i won my election i won the recount but i was in court so i went to the inaugural and i had had done a lot of uso tours so i knew uh, was friends with paul rykoff who's head of the aiva iraq afghanistan vets america right so i went to their celebration and i met um a wounded vet in a wheelchair who had a service dog, and Louis Montalban. and he said, "I couldn't be here if it weren't for a Tuesday. That was a dog." I said, "What? Well, tell me your story." And he had—he was wounded in Iraq. Um, he came back, lived in Brooklyn, was isolated, never left his apartment, was drinking. Some organization contacted him, said. We want to pair you with a service dog. He goes to Connecticut, gets paired with Tuesday. And I said, what does Tuesday do for you? He said, well, he can sense by smell when I'm going to get a panic attack and nuzzle me and prevent me from having it. I sometimes have these nightmares, these debilitating nightmares, and he'll jump on the bed and wake me up. If I don't take my medications at the right time, he'll grab me by my sleeve and take me to the medicine. He said, and I was isolated. You have to take a dog out twice a day. Right. And people don't like going up to scruffy-looking wounded vets. They do like going up to scruffy-looking wounded vets of a beautiful dog. And he went to grad school, became a writer. He wrote about it. So I had six months until I was seated, and all the only thing I could do was raise money. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't talk about it at all. I was told, don't shut up, just let it go. So I just made it my business to find out about service dogs. And so as soon as I got to the Senate, I dropped a bill to do a study to see what the effect of having a service dog for a vet with PTSD Would be and it was uh, designed. It was a three-year study matching 200 vets with PTSD with 200 with their dogs. The VA fucked up the study over and over again. It took ten years. Shocking. It took ten years when it and I was gone by then. But finally, when it came out, it's the the effects were enormous. The benefits are enormous. And that's when we got the PAWS Act, and so now vets will be able, more and more vets will be able to get service dogs. Twenty vets commit suicide every day, and um, this uh, there's nothing like a dog. <laughs> there's nothing like a dog, and a service service dogs are amazing. So when um, when the study came out, I just cried.
0: Well, you're making me emotional too now, Al. Uh, so we better wrap it. Thank you so much for for joining us. Okay, this today. has been
1: uh, this has been fun. <laughs> yeah, keep your sense of humor. Thanks. We need
0: at least at least one former senator on tour uh, who's funny. So,
1: yeah, Lieberman not so funny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, thank you, Al.
1: You bet. Thanks,
0: Ken. Thanks again to Al for joining me. Make sure to check out his show, The Al Franken Podcast. You can learn more about Al and his only former U.S. Senator currently on tour, tour at alfranken.com. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloia, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Mad Magazine Advertising mascots
1: B-movie posters
0: And cartoons
1: Oh yeah, can't forget cartoons
0: If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar
1: See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand
0: museums and dive bars Hey, you know the place the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies.
1: So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love.
0: Check out our website at two twodesignerswalkintoabar.com
1: and listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com.